warm greetings, brethren, and greetings from Charlotte. I hope that you've had a wonderful Feast of Unleavened Bread, hopefully a very meaningful Feast of Unleavened Bread. I hope that you've learned some lessons this year during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, I'd like to ask you a question as we get started here today. What kind of Unleavened Bread stories or experiences have you had this week? Have you had any surprises with the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Has leaven popped up somewhere that it should not have popped up from? Have you accidentally eaten leaven this week? Or are you like my family? Typically, we do not find leaven during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven that we may have missed in our deleavening process. Typically for us, we find something a week later, a few weeks later, a month or two later. And it's leaven of some sort tucked away somewhere that it should not have been. And we realize after finding it that it was there all along through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it reminds us that we've got to do a better job. We've got to be more diligent before the Feast of Unleavened Bread and our deleavening process, looking hard to find that physical leaven. And of course, the spiritual analogy is even more powerful. We can't just look on the surface spiritually for sin that jumps out at us. We have to look more deeply into our lives to dig, to ask God to help us discover that hidden sin, that secret sin that David talks about in the Scripture. Sin is all around us, isn't it? And we've got to be vigilant. We've got to be watching for it. <clears throat> we've got to ask God to help us find it. On this theme of sin, as we here again are at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, looking back on the last week or so, including the Passover, but also looking forward to the year ahead, the spiritual year ahead, let me ask you some questions, brethren. <clears throat> I want you to think with me today as we ponder what's ahead and what we will do individually as we move forward. Brethren, how much thought do you give to the agreement that you made at baptism, the commitment that you made, the covenant that you made to honor God, to worship God, to fear God, to obey God, and to live by every word that proceeds forth out of His mouth? Those of you who are baptized, how frequently do you think about that commitment? How frequently do you think about how you need to keep that commitment, to keep that covenant, that agreement with God? For those of you who are not yet baptized, who understand God's truth, you understand God's truth because God has opened your mind to know it. He's calling you to that truth and He wants you to respond in the right time. How frequently do you think about the importance of adhering to God's way of life, sticking to it, obeying Him, trying to make that more of a habit in your life? Brethren, in a society where agreements, where covenants are frequently broken, where even the marriage covenant has virtually no meaning anymore, how difficult is it to keep your covenant with God? How difficult is it for all of us to keep our covenant, our agreement with God? You know, many individuals that we have known over the years, and for those of you who've been in God's truth and God's church for a long time, 
and even for a shorter period of time, we've all known people over the years who seemingly made a commitment to God and His way of life. And subsequently, they've drifted away. They seem to have left that covenant behind. And much like the Israelites of old, they've returned to the land of the leeks and the onions. These individuals seem to have returned to spiritual Egypt. They've gone back to the ways that they gave up when they covenanted, when they agreed to follow God's way. Brethren, what must we do to maintain, to stick to, to adhere to the covenant that we made with God? What do we have to do to continue to stay focused on His way of life? Today, what I'd like to do is to review with you some of ancient Israel's original covenant with God. And we'll look at some of their renewing of that covenant over time. The next thing I want to do then is to help tie in Israel's renewing of their covenant with God with our renewal of our covenant with God every year at the Passover, something many of us did just a week or so ago. Finally, what I'd like to do is give you several action steps that you can take, that we can all take, in order to make sure that we stay on the straight and narrow in order to make sure that we continue feeding on the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, even long after this Feast of Unleavened Bread has ended. If you're looking for a title for today's sermon, I've entitled it Continuing in the Covenant. Continuing in the Covenant. We've spent the last week or so reviewing the covenant of God, reviewing what it means to commit to God. But we've got to keep that commitment as we go forward, do we not? after the Feast of Unleavened Bread ends tonight at sundown. Even though we may usher back in physical leaven into our lives, we've got to stay spiritually unleavened. And you know that. How do we do that? How do we continue in that covenant? For the first part of the sermon, let's go ahead and review what the old covenant was all about. If somebody walked up to you, perhaps a new person walked in and said, can you describe to me what the old covenant was? Brethren, can you do that? In a nutshell, what is the old covenant? What was it? What was that? What is the essence of that agreement between God and ancient Israel? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, and we'll start taking a look at that today. Exodus chapter 19, we've got to go back to ancient Israel as they came out of Egypt, as they left that sinful world behind them as they began to sojourn with God, to develop that relationship with Him as His holy nation, what was that covenant? What was the gist of that covenant? Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5. Let's look at that today, and we'll read the next couple of verses here. Exodus 19, verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this agreement, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came, and he called the elders of the people, and he laid before them these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said to them, What did they say? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They agreed. They agreed to do what? 
obey God. Obey the voice of God to keep His covenant. And actually the next several chapters begin to outline that covenant, the details of the covenant, the details of the agreement. But Israel said, yes, we'll do it. What did they say yes to? We don't have time to review Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. But those two chapters, the blessings and the cursings, outline the gist of the covenant. The details are listed in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and in Numbers as well. And here in Exodus also, the details of that covenant are spelled out. What God calls His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, and His laws. These are the pieces of the covenant. But what what was the gist of the covenant? Essentially, God said, if you obey me, if you keep my laws and my commandments and my statutes and my judgments, if you do these things, you're honoring me, you're showing me honor, and I'm going to do something for you. So the covenant is a relationship, it's an agreement. It's an if-then situation. God says, if you do this, I will do this. You keep your end of the covenant, and I will keep mine. Israel's end of the covenant was obey, honor, do what God asks. God's end of the covenant was do that, and I am going to bless you. And and you think about it. You go back through the first parts of the chapters of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. How did God say he would bless? These are physical blessings on Israel. He said, I'll keep your enemies away from you. They won't touch you. I'll protect you. He said that he would bless their harvests. They would abundantly harvest. Their flocks and their herds would explode. They would have plenty. They'd have many children. They would have riches. In fact, they would have so many that they would be a nation that lent to other nations. They would ride high on the earth. These are the blessings. God ultimately said, if you obey me, do these things, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, a promised land, a place. But the other side of the covenant was if you break that covenant, if you stop keeping my laws and my commandments and my statutes and my judgments, and you return to the paganism that you came out of and the sin that you came out of, if you do these things, not only am I going to remove those blessings, but I'm going to put cursings on you. You will be overrun by your enemies. Ultimately, they'll take you into captivity. And we see this in Israel's history. You're going to have famine in the land to the point where there's going to be starvation. You might even begin eating your children. Other terrible things will happen. Invaders will come in and they'll take over your land and they'll live in your houses. And they will eat your crops. Your animals will not produce. You will not have large families. In fact, your wives are going to miscarry and you won't be able to have children anymore. Brethren, this is the essence of the covenant, the agreement between God and Israel. God said, obey me and I'm going to bless you more than you can really understand. In fact, you won't even have the diseases of the Egyptians on you anymore. But if you disobey me, I've got to punish you. That's the essence of that agreement. We call it the Old Covenant. The Scripture calls it the Old Covenant, the the covenant that is passing away. It's not yet gone completely, but it's passing away. Joshua chapter 23. Turn there with me. 
because Joshua deals with reiterating this covenant, this, this relationship, this agreement that Israel made. We just read it in Exodus 19, and we read it several other times in Exodus. Forty years later, because Israel didn't keep the covenant, they doubted God. They didn't trust Him. They didn't do what He wanted. They were made to wander in the wilderness until the generation who came out of Israel, excuse me, out of Egypt died. Prior to their entering the promised land, God renewed this covenant. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. That book, the, the title of the book, actually means a repeating or a renewing. In Joshua, Joshua chapter 23, we see that Israel, the ancient nation of Israel went into the promised land after uh, Abraham's death. At that point, Joshua was about 80 years of age. You can remember what happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread that year. Um, during the feast, God had Israel encircle Jericho. They encircled Jericho. They walked around it for seven days during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on the last day today, the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they circled it seven times, they shouted, and the walls came down. And God gave them success. He helped them go over their enemies, and He allowed them to begin to inherit the promised land that happened during the days of Unleavened Bread. So as they went into the promised land, they made a covenant again with God at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Now... As we read at the end of the book of Joshua, this is the end of Joshua's life, chapter 23. Joshua is about 110 years old here. 30 years after they, roughly 30 years after they entered the promised land. And he's going over the covenant again. As he's getting ready to depart the physical life, he's trying to reiterate with the Israelites, keep this agreement with God. Let him bless you. Joshua 23, verse 6. Let's read this together. Therefore, they, therefore, be very courageous to keep all and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. They're going back over this again. Keep and do all that's written in the book of Moses. Keep the commandments and the laws and the statutes and the judgments. This is what they were told to do. Lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or the left, unless you go among these nations and those who... Remain among you. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So far, so good. Joshua is telling them, keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep holding fast to God. Don't turn away from Him. Verse 9, for the Lord has driven out from before you a great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you. He has promised you. Therefore, verse 11, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. And how do we love the Lord our God? First John tells us, we love him, we keep his commandments, for his commandments are not burdensome. Verse 12, Or else, if indeed you go back, and you cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and you make marriages with them, and you go to them, and they to you, 
Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. He's he's promising curses are going to come upon you. Hold to this. Let God continue to bless you. But if you don't, these things are going to come against you. And ultimately, you're going to perish quickly. But he told him at the beginning, be strong. Be courageous in doing this. Joshua 24, look perhaps across the page, a little bit forward. Joshua 24 and verse 14. Again, Joshua is getting ready to die. He's led the Israelites for about 30 years. He's leaving them with this promise. He's wanting their commitment again. Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. This is with their whole hearts. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods of the fathers that served and were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We've got a um, plaque in our family room at home that has this passage of Scripture, Joshua twenty four fifteen in it. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I, I look at it every day because I'm in that room in the house every day. Many mornings I do my Bible study in that room. And as I sit under the light, I'm looking right at the table that that little plaque is on. In the evenings, we're in there as a family. We walk by this thing all the time, and it's a reminder that we've got to do this, to serve the Lord our God. As for me, and I think about this as the leader of my family. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a reminder of the covenant that... I made to God at baptism, that my wife made to God at baptism, and that we're trying to raise our children under. Let's continue here uh, in verse 16. So the people answered, and they said, notice what the, the people, Israelites, what they said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in the way that we went and among all the people through who we passed. Verse 18, And the Lord drove us, excuse me, drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. They agreed, didn't they? They renewed the agreement. They renewed the covenant to honor and obey and follow God and not to go back to the sinful ways that they and their forefathers and mothers had left behind. They agreed. Did it last long? This begins the period of the judges, approximately 450 years of judges before King Saul came along in the the Davidic dynasty. What happened over the next 450 years? They didn't follow God's way, did they? God let 
the nations encroach on them. We see the Philistines coming in again and again and again, subjugating the Israelites because they didn't stick to God's way of life. They went back. They adopted the gods of the nations around them. They intermarried with them. They were taken aside. 1 Kings 8, verses 54 through 61. I'm going to give you, and you don't need to turn there. You can if you like. I'm going to give you three examples of Israel renewing their covenant to God. Why did they have to renew it? Because they fell away. In 1 Kings 8, 54 through 61, we see the dedication of the temple. Remember, David was allowed to put all the pieces in place to start the building of the temple. Solomon built the temple, or it was built under Solomon's reign. And when the temple was finished, Solomon came to dedicate the temple, to ask God to bless Israel, to ask God to come into the temple, and God's glory filled it, we're told. You may want to read that again in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 8. But we see that Verses 54 through 61, Israel agreed to obey God again, to honor Him, to obey Him, to keep His commandments, to keep His laws, to keep His statutes. Israel said, yes, we'll do this. They had fallen away during that time. A couple hundred years later, under King Hezekiah, actually a few hundred years later, under King Hezekiah, Second Chronicles 30, Israel again agrees that they will obey God. They had gotten rid of God. They had gone back to child sacrifices. They'd worshipped the Baals. They had thrown the priests out of the temple. And they had pagan priests there. They were worshipping pagan gods all over Israel, ancient Israel, and at this time Judah. Hezekiah, the wise, righteous king, came into power, cleaned up Israel, motivated the Israelites to again return to God and renew their covenant, a covenant they had forgotten, a covenant they had left go aside. <clears throat> After Hezekiah, we see things go down the tubes again. Israel rejected God. They lost track of Him. Ultimately, what happened? They went into captivity in Babylon. Uh, Judah went into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. After the 70 years, remember Daniel praying, God, please forgive your people and let us go home. God let them repatriate the promised land. And in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8, we see Israel coming before, excuse me, they were Israelites, but it was, it was the descendants of the nation of Judah primarily, probably some of Benjamin and some of Levi. They came back. They're before God. Ezra is leading them in worship and in a return to God, and once again they rededicate themselves to the covenant. A covenant that their forefathers had broken and been forced then to go into captivity. We see a history of ancient Israel, don't we? A group of people who wanted to worship God, but they didn't continue in the covenant. They forgot it again and again and again, and they had penalties because of that. Brethren, God wants us to continue in that covenant. The covenant that we make to Him at baptism. That covenant we make when we decide, you know what, I want to live God's way of life. But we need strength to do that. We need courage. We need faith. And we need resolve. We need to determine, I'm going to do this. Like Joshua did in Joshua 24. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can each of us make that statement? 
I need to look at myself in the mirror, in the spiritual mirror of the Word of God. Can I make that statement? As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. I can say that, but do I really mean it? Do I do it? Whether we're baptized or not, we're here because we know it's right and because we truly want to serve the Lord. Right? Is that why we're here? Brethren, God the Father picked each one of us because He wants us to keep His covenant and He knows we can if we rely on Him. Okay, we've reviewed a little bit in the first part of the sermon on the Old Covenant, what the Old Covenant was about. The second part of the sermon now, let's take a look at the New Covenant. What is it about? Again, if you had a new person come up to you and said, can you describe to me what the New Covenant is? In a nutshell, what does it mean? In 60 seconds, can you describe the New Covenant? Hopefully we can. If we can't, we need to do some review. Luke chapter 22 and verse 20 Let's look at this new covenant. Luke 22. This is biblical wording. This is how God describes it. Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. Likewise, he, that is Christ, this is the night before he died, the last really meaningful time with his disciples before his crucifixion, while he's in the flesh, He's giving them these new symbols for the Passover, foot washing, the bread, and the wine. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. This cup, this wine, is representative. It's it's part and parcel to this new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Christ changed the symbols of the Passover, didn't He? He got rid of the physical lamb and became the lamb Himself. He instituted the use of unleavened bread, which actually was part of the original Passover service. But He said it's more than just bread. This bread represents my broken body for you. He instituted the wine, being symbolic of His blood, which is shed for us to wash away our sins. And certainly he instituted the foot washing service that we just kept a little over a week ago. Showing us that we've got to be humble, but we've also got to be washed as well. Christ changed the Passover symbols. He magnified the outcomes of the covenant. But the basis, brethren, the basis, the essence of the covenant, the new covenant, remains the same as the old. We're to obey God, and He'll bless us. We're to not disobey God because then He'll have to curse us. Let's talk about this a little bit more. This obedience concept under the new covenant, because obedience is critical, as we're going to review in just a moment. For physical and spiritual obedience is what God is looking in this new covenant. He wants us to physically obey Him. He wants us to keep the laws the commandments that He's laid out before us, but not just in the letter. Christ magnified that in Matthew 5, didn't He? He said you need to keep the spiritual intent of these things too, not just the letter. But there are physical and spiritual aspects of this covenant and there are physical and spiritual blessings. God says, obey Me, 
under the new covenant, doesn't he? Obey me, and what will I do? I'm going to bless you in this life. Christ came, John 10, 10. Why? So we can have life and have it more abundantly in this life. God wants to give to us, as he tells us, pressed down and running over. He's a dad who loves us. And as we obey him and honor him and fear him in the right way, he wants to give. He can't wait to give to us. He wants to bless us in this life. But the new covenant has other kinds of blessings, doesn't it? We're blessed under the new covenant with a gift of God's Holy Spirit. God actually implanting within us a portion of His mind and His being and His power. That's an awesome thing. God under the new covenant says, I'm going to wash away your sins. I'm going to make you clean. You don't have to kill animals anymore every time you sin by mistake. All you need to do is come to me on your knees and repent. And that shed blood of Christ will wash it away every time. If... You're sincere. You mean it and you work at it. That new covenant ultimately gives us the most incredible blessing. Remember the old covenant? God said one of the blessings of the old covenant was obey me and I'm going to give you the promised land. Something very similar is the new covenant, isn't it? God says obey me and I'm going to give you what? Not just physical land, but the promised land of the new covenant is the kingdom of God. Everything, everything God will give us. We will inherit, as Revelation uh, 21 talks about, we're going to inherit all things. The ultimate blessing of the new covenant. The new covenant is the same agreement. I'm going to bless you for obedience. I'm going to curse you for disobedience. But the power of the promises has changed. If we disobey now, Under the New Covenant, not only will there be physical cursings that will happen, God's going to remove His protection, He tells us. He tells us that our prayers, if we're sinning, our prayers are a stench in His nostrils. Not only will He not listen, He's going to turn away when we pray. So His protection won't be there. But what's the ultimate fulfillment of the cursings of the New Covenant? If we commit, if we agree to follow God and we turn away and we don't repent and turn back. The ultimate is, number one, not only will we not enter the kingdom of God, inherit that kingdom, but we're going to burn up in the lake of fire. Not burn for eternity, burn up in the lake of fire and miss out on the eternal kingdom of God. We won't be able to inherit the kingdom. We won't be able to become a full child of God in his spiritual family. This is the essence of the new covenant, isn't it? Obey me and I will bless you, but with blessings way beyond your belief. Disobey me and I've got to curse you and you'll cease to exist. Matthew 19 and verse 17. Matthew 19. If we're going to continue in the covenant, the point of the sermon today, if we're going to continue in it, brethren, we've got to understand what it's all about. We've got to understand the gravity of it. Matthew 19 and verse 17. So he said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now he's talking about 
not just physical life, but he's switching to eternal life here. But if you want to enter into life, eternal life, life in the kingdom of God as a full spiritual son or daughter of God, what do we have to do to enter into life? Keep the commandments. Which ones? Continue in the next verse, and we see him talking about the ten. He doesn't label them all, but he's talking about the ten. If we want to be in the kingdom of God, if we want to continue in the covenant, we have to keep God's commandments. The ten. We've got to keep the ten and the pieces that go along with it. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. Let's go to the end of the story here. The back of the book. The last of what God has to say before he stops telling us the details of the future. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. Revelation 22, 14. John was inspired to write here by Christ the Revelator. Blessed are those who what? Who do his commandments, who keep his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. If we keep God's commandments, if we keep our end of the covenant, we have the right to the tree of life. That's the agreement. God says it. Obey me and I will bless you. Not I might bless you or I could bless you. No, I will bless you. If we keep the commandments, if we keep them in the letter and in the law and we allow them to be written on our hearts and to change our hearts and to change our mind into God's mind, then we have the right to the tree of life and that we may enter through the gates of the city. What city? The New Jerusalem. Our names are written in the book of life. We enter into this city. We become pillars in the temple of God and we go no more out if we keep His commandments. Christ tells us in His Word, as we do right, as we, as we adhere to this covenant, as we live according to this covenant, we should go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. This whole worldly concept, brethren, of once saved, always saved, is wrong. It's not scriptural. Worldly Christians would have it that once we commit to God and we give our heart to the Lord, even if we sin, we're still going to be in the kingdom of God. Maybe we'll have a little less of a reward within the kingdom of God, but we'll still be there. We can turn around and we can go all the way back to the world and we can sin with the best of them, but we'll still be in the kingdom of God. We'll still be there with Jesus. Brethren, that's not what the Bible says. And as we're going to see and review God continually warns us through His Word to not go back because we can lose our crowns. Brethren, when we were baptized, or when we are baptized one day, we agree before God and man to live a life that is pleasing to God, don't we? A life free from intentional sin with the knowledge that if we obey, we'll be blessed, and if we disobey, if we sin, we go back to intentional sin, we'll be cursed will be penalized. This last week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread has reminded us of that, hasn't it? That when we feed on that physical unleavened bread every single day, and that's a command, we eat unleavened bread every day as a reminder that we've got to live God's way of life in sincerity and truth and righteousness every 
day of our lives. We put this life on. 1 Corinthians 11. We read this, most likely you read this, a little over a week ago at the Passover, those of you who attended the Passover. You've probably read it also during this Feast of Unleavened Bread, either on the first holy day or maybe earlier today, if this is the second message that you're listening to. 1 Corinthians 11. We see the commitment in the Passover commitment that Christ is talking about here. Paul reviews it. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup, taking the Passover, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats in an unworthy manner, eats or drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. God wants us to examine ourselves and make sure that when we keep the Passover, which is, brethren, the Passover is a renewal of our covenant that we made at baptism. That's why unbaptized members do not keep the Passover. That's why unbaptized members don't do the symbols. They don't wash feet. They don't eat bread. They don't drink wine at the Passover. Why? Because the Passover is a renewal. That's why Peter was told by Christ um, when Christ said, I'm going to wash your feet. Remember, Peter said, not my feet only, but my whole body. I'm all in. Christ said, you don't have to be all in in that way. I don't have to wash your whole body, just your feet, because you're already clean. You've already been baptized. The Passover is a renewal of the covenant. We can't keep the Passover if we haven't made the commitment already at baptism. That's an important thing to keep in mind. But we're told here, examine yourself and come before God on the Passover to renew that covenant in a worthy manner. We can never be really worthy of the body and blood of Christ, but the manner, the attitude, the approach that we have at the Passover is key, isn't it? We've got to come humbly before God on the Passover. We've got to be teachable. We've got to be malleable in the hands of God. We've got to want to change. We've got to want our heart to be different. In fact, David made that comment, didn't he, in Psalm 51. It's actually a, a song, a hymn that we sing at services. You may have even sung it on the Passover. We've entitled it, In Thy Loving Kindness, Lord. But it's David's psalm of repentance. And in verse 2 of Psalm 51, David says, Wash me thoroughly from my sin. Wash me thoroughly. Clean me up. Take it away. We'll see this wording again by Jesus Christ himself as he inspired John to write. Revelation 1, Revelation 1 and verse 5. Revelation 1 and verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and our Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But brethren, he 
loved us, didn't he? And he washed us from our sins with his own blood. That's David's prayer. Wash me thoroughly from my sins. Christ died to wash us thoroughly from our sins. Because if we're sinful, we've broken the covenant, have we not? When we repent, we get on our knees and we ask God to forgive us, to help us change, and then we change. And God washes those sins away. The covenant is no longer broken. 1 Corinthians, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Let's look at Paul's writing, his letter to the church at Corinth. The admonition that he gave your brethren and mine almost 2,000 years ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. Actually, we can break in a little bit earlier. Verse 9, he says, Do you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Brethren, what are unrighteous? What are unrighteous actions? We can define that based on what righteousness is. What is righteousness? Psalm 119, 172 defines righteousness as all God's commandments. If righteousness is keeping the commandments, what is unrighteousness? It's breaking them, right? And he begins to go into the detail here and show us that. But he reminds us, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? To inherit the kingdom of God, we have to be righteous. We've got to be adhering to the commandments of God, not just in letter, but in spirit. That's why we worship God in sincerity and truth. We worship Him in truth and in spirit, spiritually. He says, do not be deceived. (laughs) Don't twist your mind. Don't come up with some kind of artificial rationale that sinners can be in the kingdom of God, as the worldly Christians have, with this doctrine of uh, once saved, always saved. No, that's a deception. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will enter the kingdom of God. None of these sinners will enter the kingdom of God. No matter what they said when they gave their heart to the Lord, if they've gone back to it, they won't be there. Verse 11, he says, As such were some of you. You were sinners, but you've come out. Let's continue. But you were washed. You were sanctified or set apart, separated from the world, these sinners. But you were justified, made right before God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. They were washed, washed with the blood of Christ, made right before God. How? At baptism. What did they have to do? Acts 2.38, what are the three steps? that we must go through in order to be converted and receive God's Holy Spirit. Three steps. Repentance means change. Changing from a way of sin to God's way of life. Brethren, we have to repent. But what do we repent of? Sin. Going against God. We cannot repent unless we know what sin is. Is that not true? we don't know what sin is, we don't know what to repent of. If we don't know and we don't understand that 
keeping pagan holidays like Christmas and Easter are wrong, we can't repent of them. If we don't understand that worshiping God on the day of the sun is sinful, we can't repent of that. If we don't understand that the Holy Spirit is not God and we worship something that is not God, we can't repent of that. The Trinity concept. If we don't have these understandings, if we don't understand that eating abominations, things God calls abominations, is sinful, putting them into our bodies, we can't repent. We have to understand the truth in order to repent. Why is repentance important? Because baptism, Acts 2.38, cannot, should not happen until after repentance has occurred. And even then we don't have God's Holy Spirit until, as we're told also, through the laying on of hands of the ministry, the Holy Spirit is given by God. <clears throat> we're washed by Christ's blood, but it's only effective after repentance and then we only have the down payment of God's Holy Spirit after the laying on of hands. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And let's look at verse 26 here. Galatians 3.26. Again, thinking about this covenant relationship with God, the promise that we made to God to honor, to obey, to accept the blood of Christ, but to do it in a changed life. Galatians 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God, or children of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're all Christ's, then your Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What is God saying here? That you're neither male nor female? Does that mean there's no such thing as gender anymore and we can marry whoever we want because there's neither male nor female? No, of course not. Physically, yes, there's still male and female. Look in the mirror and look across the aisle from where you're sitting. Males and females are different. God hasn't erased gender, even though humanity is trying to. What is God saying? There's neither male nor female. There's neither free nor slave. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Are there no nationalities anymore? Yes, of course there are. But what he's saying is when you inherit the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave, a lowly person, or you're free. It doesn't matter what nationality you come from. When it comes to inheriting the kingdom of God, the reward is the same. It's no different based on these characteristics. The, the, the field is leveled, if you will. The reward is the same. God doesn't give a greater reward to men than to women. It's the same. It's based on the acts that we perform in this life and how well we overcome. Brethren, eating unleavened bread this week was an exercise. It was a reminder that we need to continue in our covenant, in our agreement to obey, to honor, to fear God. We need to continue repeatedly, day after day, walking in newness of life, living our lives Christ's way. So we've reviewed so far, the first part of the sermon, the Old Covenant, <clears throat> what it was, the need that Israel had to keep, keep, keep renewing that covenant because they kept falling away from it. 
The idea that the covenant was, obey me and I'll bless you. Disobey me and I'll curse you. The old covenant was physical. Physical obedience, physical blessings, physical cursing. The new covenant is magnified, is it not? Still the same crux, the same undergirding. Obey me and I'll bless you, disobey me and I'll curse you. But it's built on better promises, as Paul said. Much better promises, eternal promises. <clears throat> what do we do, though, to continue in this covenant, continue in this agreement? God does not want us to break the agreement. He won't. He'll never leave us or forsake us, we know. He'll never break that covenant. The only way the covenant with God is broken is if we break it. And we break it by disobedience. We break it by turning away from the agreement. How do we continue in it? I want to give you a few steps, actions, that we can all take to make sure that we continue in the covenant. And you might want to explore these a little bit further. These are just sort of touching on some things. The first action that we need to take in order to continue in the covenant, after the days of unleavened bread are behind us, as we go forward now in this spiritual year, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we build our strength, courage, and faith. Build strength, courage, and faith. We cannot go forward in this covenant without strength, courage, and faith. Joshua chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's go back. We were in Joshua a little while ago. Joshua chapter 1. What did God say to Joshua? As Moses had died... They're getting ready to enter the promised land. God is giving Joshua really a pep talk here. But it's a pep talk not only for Joshua, but information Joshua needed to pass on to the Israelites he would then lead. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5, beginning of the chapter here, says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. This is a promise from God to Joshua. And what he's saying is, There will be no one ahead of you, in charge of you, over you, no man. I will hold you at the top. I will hold you as the leader. God continues, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Here's another promise. I will not leave you or forsake you. That's a promise from God. God can't lie. He can't break that promise. That promise is to us as well. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now notice verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as inheritance the land which I swore to your fathers to give them. Be strong and of good courage. Verse 7. How does he start it out? Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. That, that word, I'm in the New King James, observe. Um, NIV translates as be careful. Be careful to observe, to do according to all the law. Don't be flippant with it. Don't be careless. Be careful. Be strong and very courageous to do the law, is what he's saying. To not turn from the right or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. If you obey me, I will bless you. You'll prosper, God is saying, wherever you go. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night. Reminds me of the sermon Mr. Mario Hernandez gave a few years ago on keep your lamps burning. 
Brethren, do we meditate? Do we study the Word of God day and night, morning and evening? If you haven't listened to that sermon by Mr. Hernandez in a while, I encourage you to go listen to it again. Keep your lamps burning. It's on the website. It may be in your church libraries still. We need to meditate on the Word of God. We need to read the Word of God day and night, morning and evening, brethren, feeding on Christ, the bread of life, as we've learned about this week. You shall meditate on it. On what? On the book of the law, on the law of God, day and night, that you may be careful to observe, to do all, according to all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous. If you do it, I'm going to bless you. And then you will have good success. Verse 9, I have, not command, have I not commanded you? Again, this is the third time in just a few verses. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We need strength and courage, brethren, to stick to the covenant, to adhere to the covenant, to continue in the covenant. Without strength, without courage, without faith, we can't do it. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6 reminds us of that. Excuse me, Hebrews 11, 6. I'm not going to turn there. It's a memory scripture. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why does Dr. Meredith continue to go back to the importance of faith? We need more faith individually and collectively as the body of Christ. Why? Because without it, we cannot please God. We can't adhere to the covenant without faith. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1. Paul, writing the second epistle, the second letter to the minister here, Timothy, gave him wise advice. Let's see. Timothy was here when I looked at it this morning, 2 Timothy. And chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God. What's that gift? God's Holy Spirit in you. Stir it up, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Brethren, as you know, it takes faith, strength, and courage to live God's way of life, doesn't it? It can be fearful sometimes to do this. People look down on us. People chastise us. They criticize us. We could lose a job. It can appear that problems are happening because of our belief in God. It takes faith. It takes courage to adhere to God's way of life. And it takes the power of God, that spirit that is not a spirit of fear, but it's a spirit of power and love in a sound mind. Zechariah 4 and verse 6, another one of those memory scriptures. Zechariah, near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 4, 6. What does it have to say? What does it have to remind us about? So he answered and he said to me, This is the word of the Lord, Zechariah 4, 6. The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
We overcome with the help of the Spirit of God. We adhere to the covenant with the help of the Spirit of God. Hebrews tells us that the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, couldn't keep the covenant. And the problem wasn't with the covenant. It wasn't with the law. The problem was with the people. They didn't have it within them to hold on. We need God's Holy Spirit in us to help us keep that covenant. Brethren, this is why at a point in our lives, we've got to commit to God. We've got to choose to surrender to God, to repent, to be baptized, to commit to Him fully, to let His Holy Spirit dwell in us because without His Holy Spirit, brethren, we can't adhere to the covenant fully. We need to get in the habit of trying before we're baptized. But if we're not baptized, we can't do it. And if we can't do it, we will not be in the first resurrection, brethren. Those of you who are sitting on the fence with baptism, think about this. Young people, you're going to get there at some point. You need to think about this at a certain point in your lives. As you get to be late teens, early 20s, you need to take a look at yourself and your life and think about where am I going and what do I want to do with my life. God's called us if He's opened our minds. He wants us to commit to Him, but we have to have His Holy Spirit to do it, to do it fully. He wants us to make the commitment. So, how do we continue in the covenant? Point number one, action number one, we need strength, courage, and faith. Brethren, work at building more of it. You need to do it. I need to do it. Work at building more strength in God. Courage in the truth. Faith in Him to work in us. What else can we do? Point B, if you will, under how do we continue in the covenant? We need to prove and hold fast to the truth. Prove and hold fast to the truth. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, I'm not going to turn there. It's a memory scripture as well. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Prove all things and what? Hold fast to that which is good, true, right. Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Brethren, if we don't prove it to be good and right, we will not hold fast to it. Many of the people that I've known and that you've known who seem to drift away from the truth seemingly never proved that it was right, never proved that it was true, God's truth. They just went along. Young people, as you grow up in the truth, it's easy to take for granted the truth that you know because it is true. But you've got to prove it. And you've got to disprove falsehoods. If you're not sure quite how to do that, talk with your parents. If you need more help, talk with your minister. Try and figure out why this is true. Not only that it is true, but why. And why these other things are false. You can do that. It takes work. But once you prove it, it cannot be taken away from you. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter. We think about proving what is right but then holding fast, not letting go of that truth once we prove it to be right. <clears throat> Second Peter, in chapter 2 and verse 20. Second Peter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, God is talking about the poles of the world and what's likely to happen to His called out ones, us, 
if we're not careful. If we don't hold, if we don't prove it first, and number two, if we don't hold fast. If after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they've come out, they've committed to his way of life, they've chosen a way. If after they do this, they're again entangled in them, in the ways of the world, and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Some of you have animals. Hopefully most of us don't have sows, pigs as animals, uh, but you can, a dog, a cat, a horse, you can give them a bath, you can clean them up, and what is one of the first things they want to do? Go roll in the dirt. You can do it with a pig, wash them clean, and the first thing they want to do is head back to the mud. Many animals do this. God says, if you come out of the world and you, you turn your back on it and you start living my way of life, and then you reject it and you go back to the world, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. You've ever seen that happen? Dog eats too quickly, something happens, it throws up, vomits out its food, and it sniffs it, and it starts eating it again. It's disgusting. It's gross, and that's God's point. It's gross in God's eyes when we do this. It's nauseating. When we come to Him and we give up the world and then we go back to it. God says it would be better if you didn't come to it first because if you, if you give it up and then you go back to it, your latter end is worse than the first. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, it... it, it brings to mind this once saved, always saved concept that the world teaches, worldly Christianity teaches, that is so wrong, that says that if you, once you give your heart to the Lord, you probably shouldn't go back and do sin, but if you do, you're still saved. God says, no, that's gross. I don't want any part of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 20. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Stick to it. <clears throat> God wants us to stick to it. He doesn't want us to go back. He wants us to hang on. Brethren, many of today, many today who've left the church apparently either never prove the basic doctrines to themselves in the first place, never prove that this is God's truth. This is what God wants me to do. Or they failed to hold on to what they originally proved to be right, and they've forgotten. Sort of sobering. My father-in-law died a few years back. God never called him. He was never converted. But he made an interesting observation. When our former association began to do a 180-degree turn on their understanding of the Bible, and they went back to the ways of worldly Christianity, he made the observation after watching it for decades. He said, you know what? If it was true for 30 years, it's still true today. He understood the principle that God doesn't change, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If it was once right, it's always right. 
It's not situation ethics as the world teaches. Brethren, we need to prove and hold fast to the truth. Prove it. Prove it deeply. And then hang on. The third point, the third action we need to take to make sure we continue in the covenant is very closely related. It is endure difficult times. We've got to hang on through the easy, but we've got to hang on through the difficult as well. Revelation chapter 3. Turn back there with me, please. Revelation chapter 3. God gives a warning. He gives an admonition. He gives an encouragement to the Philadelphians. Yes, it's, Philadelphia was an era of the church. We're past that now. We're in the latest scene era. Philadelphia was a church on the mail route in Asia Minor. But Philadelphia is also a spirit, brethren, present in the church of God at the end of the age. It's an attitude. It's a way of looking at the truth. It's a way of living one's life. A way that God calls us to be part of. God doesn't want us to be Laodicean or of Sardis. He wants us to be Philadelphian in the way we live our spiritual lives and our physical lives as well. He wants us to be Philadelphian. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. What was the admonition to Philadelphia? To us. He says, because you have kept my command to what? Hang on. Hold fast. Persevere through the difficult times. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which has come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast. Don't let it go. Hang on. Persevere. Don't let the truth go. Continue in the covenant. Hold fast what you have that... No one may take your crown. What's the implication? What's very clearly implied here? If we don't hold fast, if we don't continue in the covenant, brethren, what happens? The crown that's laid up for us in heaven will be given to someone else if we don't continue in the covenant. Hold fast that no one take your crown. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, let us, it's a warning, it's a, it's a admonition, exhortation. Let us not grow weary doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. If we hang on, if we continue in the covenant. Yeah, Satan and the world around us are going to try and make us feel worn out and worn down. That's why we can't do this on our own. We need God's Holy Spirit helping push us forward. But he says, don't grow weary doing good. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't think, I'm doing good enough. You know that attitude, it's good enough for government work? I've done enough, I don't need to push any harder. No, don't grow weary doing good. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1. 2 Timothy 4.1. I charge you therefore, brethren. 2 Timothy I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and in His kingdom, preach the word. So admonition not only to Timothy, but to the church. Preach the word. Be ready in and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come. This is a warning. 
when they will not, what? Endure. Persevere. Hold fast. Continue in the covenant. They will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to lies, to fables. But be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Hang on. Don't let go. Continue in that covenant. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We've got to hang on. There is a time, and the time is now, that people are being led astray. They're being pulled away from God. Hebrews chapter 12. Just a couple more scriptures, brethren, as we wind up the sermon here today. As we wind up this point as well, that we've got to endure through the difficult times. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Paul, again, nearing the end of his ministry, talking to the body of Christ and to us. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us do what? <clears throat> Lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, what did he do? He endured, didn't he? Christ endured. He didn't give up. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Remember what he did, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. <clears throat> Paul uses the analogy of a race here. If you're in a race, you're either trying to get away from someone or you're trying to win a race. Do you reach down and pick up two big blocks of cement, two heavy weights, Two bags of sand that weigh you down and start running and try and win the race with all this extra weight? Or do you get rid of the weight? Maybe take off some outer garments, things that might slow you down. Put on a pair of shorts instead of long pants because the long pants will get in the way. Lighten your load. You know, we see people in the Olympics. We see swimmers in the Olympics. They're not wearing trench coats, big heavy overcoats and big hats and boots as they swim, are they? They are stripped down to the minimum. In fact, they're wearing special suits now that actually help get rid of even more of the drag. They're getting rid of every weight that would slow them down. Brethren, sin here is likened unto a weight. We are in a race to the kingdom of God. We've got to hang in there. We've got to endure. But if you're in a long race, if you're running a marathon... Again, you don't put a backpack full of weight on you because you're going to run out of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Run out of energy. You won't have enough left. You've got to shed the weight to try and give yourself every advantage to finish the race. Brethren, sin weighs us down. It will hold us back. It will keep us from finishing the race. That's what he's talking about here. We've got to shed the weight. We've got to get rid of the sin. Keep it off. Continue in the covenant without sin. 
If we don't do that, we're not going to finish the race and be in the kingdom of God. Brethren, in the sermon today, we've reviewed how God, God's chosen people, Israel, renewed their covenant to honor and worship and obey their Creator. They had to do this over and over again because they kept breaking the covenant, feeling the ramifications of, the consequences of breaking that covenant. They went back to sin. They didn't stay free from sin. We, brethren, have been given a better covenant, haven't we? A better covenant with better promises. Turn with me to your final scripture in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 4. Excuse me. <laughs> Hebrews 8. There we go. Hebrews 8 and verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of what? Christ became the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second because finding fault with them, that's the Israelites, God says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the spiritual house of Israel, who we are. We read about that in Galatians 6. And with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Brethren, God is trying to do that with us today. We have been given God's Holy Spirit if we're baptized. If we're not, God is wanting us to come to Him, to repent, to change to commit to His way of life so He can give us that Holy Spirit. He's giving us the opportunity to have the law of God written in our hearts through that Holy Spirit. Brethren, we've got to look to God as the author and the finisher of our faith for guidance and spiritual protection. During the easy times, yes, but during the hard times, especially. Brethren, we must continue to, over the next weeks and months and years ahead, we must continue to feed on Christ daily, daily, in the morning and in the evening, meditating, reading day and night. We must continue to search out and rid our lives of the spiritual leaven that makes its way in to the nooks and the crannies. To do this continually throughout the year, we must do this with the help of our Father. We can't stop. Now that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is coming to an end, we must continue to look for the spiritual leaven. Sin, every day. We must continue to replace the spiritual leavening, sin, with spiritual unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, God's righteousness. Brethren, the way we do this is to spend time exercising the tools that God has given us. Prayer, study, meditation, fasting, and regular fellowship with God's people. Brethren, without consistent, regular spiritual contact with our Creator and our brethren, we'll begin to lose spiritual ground. We won't be able to keep our end of the covenant. We won't be able to continue 
keeping God's laws and obeying Him in everything we do. I encourage you, brethren, let's all together continue to hold fast to the agreement, the covenant that we made with our Creator at baptism, the agreement we renew every year, review every year at the Passover. Let's continue in the covenant that we were enforced this past week by feeding on Christ daily during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's strive diligently to overcome and to become perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. Brethren, I encourage you, let's work harder, even harder, to draw ever closer to God so that we don't lose spiritual ground going forward, so that we continue to honor our agreement with God, and so that we continue in the covenant with our Creator. Do well going forward and continue in that covenant.